0: listen up people we need to build a wall and it needs to be huge we're all familiar with this plea from our president but it's not an unfamiliar plea when you look at the annals of history even biblical history so if you know the story of ancient Israel you know that at one point God called them to a big wall campaign. Specifically, he called them to reconstruct the walls of Jerusalem, their nation's capital. So if you know the grand scheme of Israel's story, you kind of start back at the beginning when God calls Abram out of the land of Canaan to go or out of the land of Ur to go to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. A couple of generations later, Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt, where they would be for, for 400 years. They grew and they multiplied, but also they came under slavery. It's that point that God raised up Moses to lead the exodus out of Egypt on journey back to the promised land. But they're delayed for 40 years, their disobedience in the wilderness So it takes a while for them to get back to the promised land. But when they finally arrive, they spend a number of years under the rule of regional judges, then under a monarchy, one single king, and then the monarchy splits in two. They have many different kings. And it's during that time that it's marked by a continual disobedience. Israel keeps on going after false gods. And God continues to warn them. He raises up prophecies and say, Israel, if you keep on doing this, I'm going to allow foreign nations to take you from the promised land. And that's exactly what happened. So Israel is in this period of exile. And they get to return. And that's when we see the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem. And so this project wasn't like the New Deal of FDR's presidency. It was met with great opposition. We read of it in Nehemiah chapter 4. We see the seething words of hecklers who say stuff like this. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burn ones at that. But it's more than just vocal opposition. More than just jeers. This opposition came in threats of physical violence. The chapter goes on to describe the increasing anger of their enemies. They say this, they will not know or see till we come among them. And kill them and stop the work. So we we'll pause here for a moment. What was Israel supposed to do in this situation? You think of that grand story. Hadn't they been through enough already? Here they are, fresh on their return, and it already looks like their homecoming is going to be short-lived. So what do they do next? Where do they turn? Nehemiah 4 also answers this. They say, here. O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Later, when they receive more opposition, they say, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Friends, faith in God is what we're called to. That's pretty easy. Most people know that. Most Christians know that. And faith in God is often not easy. That's a pretty obvious statement too. But here it proves true again. Here, despite a hopeless situation for Israel and those reminding them of their hopelessness, what did Israel do? Israel believed God. When they had nowhere else to turn, they turned to the Lord, the immovable, the faithful God of the universe. So today, we read of people who are in situations when all other possible avenues of hope have been exhausted. To make matters worse, the doubts of bystanders tempt them to think into more despair, tempt them to think and sink lower. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that hopelessness, the light of Christ emerges, who is hope for the hopeless. So today, we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to the middle of chapter 5. Next week, I'm gonna preach a standalone sermon for Easter, and then we are going to take a break from Mark, and we're gonna to go to Genesis. And we're going to come back to Mark later, don't worry. Um, and so, um, but today, and so far, in the Gospel of Mark, we've witnessed him give a presentation that answers two simple questions. Answers more than these questions, but primarily it answers two simple questions. First, who is Jesus? And second, what does it mean to follow him? Today is no different. We see more of who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? So in light of that, I believe the main point of this passage today in front of us, you'll find it printed in the bulletin, is that despite everything that would convince you otherwise, when you exhaust all other hope for salvation, Christ stands sufficient. Despite everything that would convince you otherwise, when you exhaust all other hope for salvation, Christ stands sufficient. Now you, I invite you to turn in the Pew Bible in front of you or your own Bible to page 840 where you'll find Mark chapter 5. And verses 21 to 43 include three paragraphs. And it's another one of those Mark sandwiches, right? He starts with a bun. He starts with one part of the story. He leaves the bun on the plate. He puts all the stuff that goes on in the middle. And he completes the sandwich at the end. And throughout all of that sandwich... We find, as in the rest of Mark, that Jesus is worthy of our faith even when it's really hard to have that faith. So as the text comes in three paragraphs, we'll ask three questions in light of each one. First, will you believe when it costs you something? And we're not talking about money there either, necessarily. Second, will you believe when your past would keep you away? And finally, will you believe when others say it's foolish? So what we want to declare today is that in light of all those challenges, just like the challenges that Israel faced when they were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, that faith in God is worth it, and that Christ stands sufficient despite those challenges. So, first question. Will you believe when it costs you something? Notice verse 21. And he went with him. As Mark regularly does, he begins by setting the scene for us in verse 21. So, Jesus and his disciples are returning to the western, more Jewish part of Galilee. So, last week, in the previous section, we seen that the disciples were in the eastern part of Galilee. Uh, so the Sea of Galilee, northwest Israel, uh, and this is where Jesus healed a man possessed by a horde of demons. We noticed that was just an unusual and kind of strange scene, but a very powerful one still. Now, many other places in Mark's gospel, like last week, we saw Jesus' authority or power, and we saw his compassion at the same time. It is no different today. So Jesus lands on the shore of a place where his reputation precedes him. You notice the crowds are back, verse 21. And these crowds, they testify of Jesus' mighty works, that they actually happened. But they also kind of get in Jesus' way all the time. They impede what he wants to do. But the focus doesn't last long on the crowds. The focus turns from the crowd to an individual And no, this time it's not another demon-possessed man who runs to Jesus, but it's still a surprising character. It's a ruler of a synagogue named Jairus. And just as a side note, noting his his name, it, it could mean that the disciples, or Peter, namely, who is Mark's source for his gospel, perhaps Peter knew who Jairus was. Remember, these are eyewitnesses writing these books. That's valuable, friends. So rulers of synagogues, what do they do? Rulers of synagogues were in charge of general oversight of synagogues. We remember that synagogues functioned basically as community assembly halls. It's where people would gather to worship on the Sabbath, and it's often where children were taught during the week. So general oversight of a synagogues included taking charge of matters concerning finances, uh, building and grounds, and planning worship activities. This is what a ruler of a synagogue would do. So most rulers of synagogues were lay leaders. It's more of an administrative position, and it didn't require formal religious training. So this is who Jairus is, a synagogue ruler. You keep going in verse 22. We don't just see who he is. We see how he comes to Jesus. It says that he saw Jesus. He fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly. So Jairus is, is desperate. He, he feels helpless. And it's amazing how our bodies will often react to just overwhelming emotion. Right? A feeling of victory, what do you naturally do? You, you naturally you lift up your hands. But a feeling of just utter despair, it just seems like you naturally collapse. So this is what's here. Jairus is helpless to the point he collapses at Jesus' feet. And what is it that brings him to this point? Is that his daughter, his, his little daughter, he says, is dying. She's at the point of death. She's not doing well. She's sinking fast. So he comes to Jesus hoping to find some glimmer of hope. And if you could imagine a full-grown man Prostrating in the dirt, clinging to a feet of another man, likely in tears, stammering out any words he can. Come, lay your hands on her. Why does Jairus want this? So that she may be made well and live. I wonder if you have seen your need for Jesus to make you well. And this could also be translated, made well, it could also be translated as saved. So in this instance, it refers to physical well-being, right? But Jesus is clear throughout all the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament is clear that Jesus came for a scope beyond physical well-being. That his mission extends far beyond that. It extends to our spiritual well-being. It extends to our state before God. But often we get those priorities messed up. Physical priorities are important, right? You think about our prayer requests often. Our prayer requests, you know, for many Christians, myself included, sometimes be tempted to just be updates about all the people in our lives who are sick. Now, important, the Bible says, pray for those who are sick. But we can't let the temporary get get ahead of the eternal. So it's not that we shouldn't pray for those things. It's that we should remind ourselves that our state before God takes precedence over those things. So when we think about being made well, we should think first about our state before God. When we think about being made well, we have to have a certain perspective that we need this even. It's a perspective that a theologian named J.K. Chesterton had. When a British newspaper asked its readers to write in telling what they think is wrong with the world, Chesterton wrote, Dear Sir, I am Sincerely yours, J.K. Chesterton. Until we have seen our guilt before a perfect and holy God, until we have seen our need to be made well, until we have seen our need to be saved, we will have no use for Jesus. It will be a waste of time. That's why the Bible talks about the necessity of confession. You know what confession means? Confession literally means agreeing with God about our sin. Think about any time you confess to your spouse, your friend. You are agreeing that what you did was wrong. So here, we confess our sin. We confess our need. So friends, if you don't see your need to be made well, would you pray that God would give you eyes to see? eyes to see perhaps how he sees you from his perspective of being holy and perfect and blameless. But there's good news, friends. The fact that we need to be made well, there's someone who can make us well. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we come to Jesus with them. He is the payment for our sin, the propitiation for our sin. So we confess it, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we believe on Christ. So we noted who Jairus is. We've seen how he came to Jesus. We see why he came to Jesus at all. Now we ask, what does Jairus coming to Jesus show us? While he may not have had fully formed faith in the Lord yet, he's at least willing to turn to Jesus in a time of desperation. And what makes it more surprising that he's a ruler of a synagogue. Now you think about it, if you've if you known the Gospel of Mark so far, you know that people who hang out in synagogues aren't that fond of Jesus. There are groups like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the Herodians, it's to the point where even rival groups are scheming together to plot to kill Jesus. These are the groups that Jairus runs in. So instead of being tempted to think, I'm just going to fold into to what everyone else says. I'm going to try to please those people, have their opinion about Jesus. No, Jairus goes to Jesus. He doesn't do that. He doesn't get hung up in what the groups he runs with thinks. He goes to Jesus believing, thinking that he can do something about his daughter, that he can make her well. So, friends, Jesus will say in another time that those who follow him must count the cost before they do. So we ask ourselves, do we run in groups where following Jesus would not be popular or not be advisable or would even just be a weird thing to do? Do we run in those kind of groups? I would argue that most of us do. And friends, that's why nominal Christianity is so appealing. It's at least one of the reasons. Nominal Christianity, a half-hearted Christianity, allows us to get all of our priorities met. You think about that. So we get to, on the one hand, we get to maintain our reputation in the eyes of our peers and have, on the other hand, some occasional religion on the side. So you see that as a whole. that's That's not really faith. It's actually selfishness. We get to meet all of our priorities. That instead of counting the cost of following Jesus in every area of life, We reverse the roles. We tell Jesus the cost of him being in our lives. As if we are Lord over him and get to set the terms for the relationship. So allow me to get specific here. To any students in the room. Any students in the room, if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, to trust him alone for the forgiveness of your sin and a good standing before God, as you seek him daily, does your behavior at school show that? Are you representing him well? So this is coming from a guy who's been there, right? I know what it's like to care more about what other people think about me than to care about my identity in Christ, about who Jesus has made me, about my acceptance in him. I know what it's like to care more about my reputation than having a desire for my friends to know the Lord. So being known as a Christian at school, it may cost you the reputation or the popularity you secretly want. But friends, let me tell you a secret. Popularity fades. And Jesus doesn't. But the cost of discipleship isn't limited to students. Following Jesus may cost you rapport at the workplace. It may introduce some awkwardness around family members who aren't Christians. And it may keep you from all the supposed fun you see people having on social media. Jesus himself doesn't deny this cost. In fact, he warns of it. He says, count it. What do you want more? The things of this world, you want him? But he also says that this is worth it. Think of forgiveness of sin. Think of new life in Christ. Think of eternity with the Lord. Eternity. The cost here is light compared to all that. So Jairus comes to Jesus in spite of what all of his other friends may think. And in response, verse 24 says that Jesus did what? He went with him. No words, just simple actions. So amid all the chaos of the throng of people around him, Jesus cares for one individual. And friends, hold on to that truth. That the Lord knows your name. As David says, he knows when we lie down and when we rise up. And remember Jesus' mission. That he came for people. That's no different here. So Jesus goes with Jairus to see Jairus' daughter. And we keep reading, he gets interrupted along the way. On the face of it, it doesn't seem like Jesus has all the time in the world to just stop. Stop. It's like if your wife was going into labor and it's your job to get her to the hospital. Right? You load up the car, your bag's ready, and you're driving. And you get down Bagley Road and you see Starbucks. And you say, honey, uh, we're gonna stop. We're gonna get you your drink and I'm gonna get my drinks. It's only gonna take about five minutes. It's gonna be a long time. Uh, so hang in there and we'll get to the hospital. I don't know if it's to that level, but this is an interruption. This is an urgent matter. Jairus' daughter is dying, and Jesus stops. You wonder what Jairus was thinking, but we're not told, and the scene takes a different direction. Now we ask that second big question. Will you believe when your past would keep you away? Will you believe when your past would keep you away? Pick back up in verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd. And touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus is following Jairus but he doesn't shake off the crowd. We've seen before that these crowds don't share our sense of personal space. They very much invade personal space. But just as Jairus made it through the crowd, so did another individual. This time, it's a woman who is also in a desperate and hopeless situation. And Mark reveals just the depths of this woman's suffering he writes that she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And that word, that word discharge, is a term that combines physical suffering and shame. It literally means whip, lash, scourge, or torment. And according to a Mosaic law, this would have rendered her unclean for 12 years. That's 12 years with her and anyone who touched her would be banished from the community, would be set outside the community, in part so that the disease wouldn't spread. And it also meant at the time that she wouldn't be allowed in the temple. In fact, going out in public for this woman was a risk. It's like those people who have to wear surgery masks when they're out in public just kind of naturally avoid them. It's for her. She had to yell out, unclean, unclean, if she'd ever went in public. But if that weren't enough, verse 26 says that she had suffered under many doctors. This is first century medical practices here. They're often painful. And if that weren't enough, they were harmful. They didn't help. So she spent all that she had on doctors. And not only did it help, it grew worse. There's a side note. I wonder, I wonder how many people here can relate in some way to this woman. How many people in our church can relate in some way to this woman? And I said before that you know we've got to take our state before God. That has to take precedence before our physical state. But know here that your physical state's still important. And know that here at this church, I take it as a priority. The elders take it as a priority. The entire church takes it as a priority to pray for those. And we, we hope we pray with boldness for those who have lingering, lingering ailments. We pray for you, just like this woman here. But for her, all human hope was exhausted. She tried it. It fell short. And what does she do? She goes to Jesus, if that's not a lesson in itself. And how does she go to Jesus? This time it's a little different. She reasons with herself that all she has to do, verse 28, all she has to do is touch the hem of his garment. Now, faithful Jewish men in that day would wear outer garments, kind of robe things that would have tassels on their corners. And Mark doesn't tell us what's going on in her head. To me, to us, it may sound a little superstitious. But think about it. The garments were only good insofar as they belonged to Jesus. In other words, she didn't believe there was anything magical about Jesus' robe. She believed there was something special about Jesus himself. So when, when I was in Israel... We were in Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene is from. It's in Galilee. And in Magdala, there's a little chapel there, right by the water. And in the basement of the chapel, there's a painting of this scene uh, of of Jesus and the bleeding woman. And it doesn't show the whole picture. It's just zoomed in on feet. There's feet strapped with sandals, and you see tassels hanging down. Uh, And then also in the picture is, is a hand reaching out. And it was such a powerful painting, I thought. And our tour guide, who is brilliant, tour guides in Israel have to be really, really smart. He was telling us an insight that we had never heard before. He said that the word for tassel, at the hem of the garment, the, that word "kanaf" in Hebrew, is the same word used for wings. So perhaps he pointed out that this meant that the woman... Believed Malachi 4:2, we read it earlier, that Jesus had healing in his wings. We all thought that was pretty cool. What was it that made her aware of Jesus in the first place? You go backwards to verse 27. You see that? She had heard reports about Jesus. You know, all these crowds. There is a buzz about the arrival of the Lord. And I wonder how the church can recapture that today. A lot of people have uh, FOMO. Have you heard of that? F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. A lot of people have this. All the time people are talking about the next best thing, talking about the last show they watched, talking about the game last night, talking about the new restaurant they just tried, the movie they just saw. And people are afraid of missing out. I wonder how we could talk about more important things in the same way. You may come back to me and say, like, hey, talking about Jesus is way different than talking about the movie I saw last night. And I would say, you are absolutely right. But we've got to find a way to get excited, or at least get aware of discussing things that have ultimate importance. So if if you think about it for a second, this woman here, what if she hadn't heard the reports about Jesus? It's the same people for us who don't know the Lord. Have they heard where they find hope? It's like Paul asks in Romans 10, how will they believe on him whom they never heard? She heard reports about Jesus. So you put all this together for her, her incredible suffering, her faith in just touching his garment, the fact that she came to him because she heard about him. You realize she acted on what she heard about Jesus. And for all of us here, whether you're a Christian or not, Will you act upon what you've heard about Jesus? You've heard about Jesus this morning. Will you act upon what you've heard? So, just as Jesus responded to Jairus by going with him, Jesus responds to this woman. you look at verse 29, we read that the woman was healed immediately. Then, verse 30, Jesus knows something has happened. And then the disciples, in typical disciple fashion, jump on the opportunity to put down the one they were supposed to be following. Jesus asked, who touched me? Disciples were, everyone's touching you. You, ever, you have the friend who's smarter than everyone else, and you take advantage of any opportunity to call him out when he's wrong. Uh, maybe that's what the disciples were thinking here. Uh, but there are hints that Jesus knew exactly what's going on. There are hints. First, he, he knows someone touched his garment, specifically his garment. You look also at that word in verse 30, that first word, who? It doesn't show up in English. That word in the Greek is actually feminine. So Jesus knows that this woman touched his garment. So now he calls out, he wants to draw out this woman. Now we don't know Jesus' motivation here. Perhaps he wants everyone around to know that she's no longer unclean, that she's restored to the community. That's a part of it, probably. I think another part of it, too, is that Jesus draws her out to show her that faith in him is more than getting something from him. That faith in Jesus is more than just getting stuff from him. So, friends, the most valuable commodity from faith in Christ, is not a healed marriage, is not a resolved addiction, is not even forgiveness of sin, or a home in heaven. No, the most valuable commodity of faith in Christ is Christ himself. The Bible says that faith in Christ unites us to Christ, so that Christ now is literally our life and our inheritance. So we have to ask ourselves, do we only want stuff from Jesus or do we want Jesus himself? So Jesus calms the fear of the woman and affirms what has already taken place. She's been healed and her faith has made her well. Think about that statement. Your faith has made you well. Verse 34. It has parallels to us. How we are made well in our state before God, what we were talking about earlier. So think about it. Think about these parallels. First, just like the woman is healed immediately, so does faith in Jesus for us bring about immediate salvation. So yes, over time, our good works prove that that has happened. But still, our salvation, the forgiveness of sins, A new righteous standing before God does not take place over time. It is immediate because faith links us to Jesus who has accomplished the salvation already. But there's another parallel. Jesus told the woman that her faith has made her well. But remember that faith is only as good as its object. Right, I can put a chair up here. And that chair, no matter how much I believe it, no matter how much I believe that that chair can hold me up, if it has four cracked, broken legs, when I sit down, what's going to happen? It's going to break. It's not going to hold me up, no matter how much I believe it. Faith is only as good as its object. So here, faith we see as a loving dependence, not on ourselves, but on someone else, namely on Christ. So by having faith in Jesus, the woman was not relying on herself for healing, but relying on him. And she does this even with all the baggage from her past, even in carrying all that she has and sitting down in loving dependence. She believes that the Lord can carry that and uphold her. So you, in light of all we've been through, do you believe that Jesus is enough that he's able to carry that, get rid of it, and transform your life and give you the power to repent? The Bible declares, yes, he is sufficient for this salvation, even with all of our baggage. So last big question, more briefly. We're running out of time, but we're going to complete the sandwich. Will you believe When others say it's foolish. Will you believe when others say it's foolish? Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. and told them to give her something to eat. There's so much here. But notice that when first Jairus came to Jesus, his daughter was not dead. She was dying. But Jesus is delayed in healing this other woman and delayed long enough that it gives time for Jairus' daughter to pass away. And as the narrative continues, we see that faith in Jesus becomes harder and harder harder. For Jairus, there are doubts creeping in from all sides. We see doubt from those who come from Jairus' house, telling Jairus, Why bother the teacher anymore? They find out his daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus can't do anything about this. It's akin to people who say that Jesus is nice, but for stuff that really matters, why bother? He's not that useful. Apparently, these people hadn't heard the reports that the woman heard in the previous section. Look at verse 36. We see doubt there. Jairus is tempted to fear. His little girl just died. I mean, wouldn't you fear? Verse 38. We see people weeping outside of Jairus's house. At a times of death in those days, people would hire professional mourners Considering Jairus' high position, there would be a lot of these. Hence the great commotion outside of his house. It's tough to have hope. It's tough to have faith when everyone is weeping and wailing. You see in verse 40, these same mourners turn from weeping to laughing in Jesus' face. Oh, how hard is it to have faith here? Doubts pile on. It's a large case not to believe in Jesus. But what did Jesus do? That's an important question. A lot of people ask WWJD, what would Jesus do? I think the more important question is what did Jesus do? Jesus overheard the comments of the people from Jairus' house. Over here could also mean ignore. Instead of responding to the comment, he directly addresses Jairus. Tells him to trust him. You think about it, if Jairus was been with Jesus this whole time, he had good basis to do this. What did he just see? He just saw a woman be healed. He just saw the woman's faith and coming to him and just touching the hem of his garment. So in light of the commotion and weeping and another doubt, Jesus takes control of who's around him, only takes his inner circle, only takes the family of this daughter. In light of the weeping... Jesus exudes confidence, saying that it will only be as if this girl took a nap. In light of the hopeless situation of death, Jesus takes the girl by the hand, speaks in his mother tongue of Aramaic, and the girl gets up. Totally restored, able to walk, able to eat. Of course the people are amazed. Text says they are overcome with amazement. Jesus' command to silence, verse 43, tells us that he's determined to continue in his mission beyond this one. So, if the thread that runs through this entire passage is Christ's sufficiency in the light of hopeless situations, whether it's a, a woman who's had an ailment for 12 years that no one else could solve, or whether it's a 12 year old daughter who has died. If that's the theme, sufficiency in hopeless situations, then it points to Christ's sufficiency for the hopeless situation we all find ourselves in. This isn't death of physical nature like this daughter. This is death, as the Bible says, in trespasses and sins. And the good news, friends, is that Christ is sufficient Also for this, that Christ has completed this rescue mission, that on the cross he cried, it is finished. And rising from the dead, he proved that it was. So in our hopeless situation of standing before God in our sins, we want to turn to ourselves. We have a loving trust, a loving dependence on Christ. And there are many things that would keep us from that. Coming to Jesus in faith, giving your life to him, may cost us our reputation. It may cost us our comfort. Coming to Jesus, giving our life to him, may force us to deal with our past, to acknowledge it, to turn from it, and to give it to him. Coming to Jesus, giving our life to him, will not go unchallenged by our own doubts or the doubts of those around us. But we ask, where else would we turn just as Jesus stands sufficient to heal in this passage who else stands sufficient for our salvation besides Jesus Christ the Lord let's pray Lord we believe help our unbelief drive out fear from us drive out selfishness from us To seek our reputation before seeking you. To avoid things from you. To keep things from you. Drive us from being motivated solely by our doubts and the doubts of those around us. God, increase our faith. And we know, we have confidence that you are sufficient. That you are sufficient to make us well to give us a good standing before you, because it is finished. Renew our joy in this, Lord, this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.